Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the podcast today. This week's episode is the 29th of season two, in which we'll be discussing William Shakespeare for the first time on the podcast, and I could not be more excited. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you're interested in learning more about me and my writing, just check out my website, kittywayneproductions.com, linked in the episode description. Thanks for tuning in today, and I hope that you will enjoy thinking about Shakespeare with me even half as much as I will enjoy discussing Shakespeare. I am going to dive right in because we will never get through everything I want to cover in this play if I waste any time, so let's go! Julius Caesar, or more properly, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, to give it its full name, of course, It's also been called The Life and Death of Julius Caesar, so there's some debate on the real full title. You may wonder why I've chosen to discuss Julius Caesar specifically on the podcast. Of all Shakespeare's plays, why not one of his most famous? Uh, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, or something? Well, the main reason is this. Frankly... Julius Caesar is probably Shakespeare's cleanest play. Well, there is violence in it, um, but I'm pretty sure it's the cleanest in terms of having any off-color content. I literally noticed only one attempt at an off-color joke in the very first scene, and that was all. Um, And even that one was pretty veiled and um, archaic, and honestly, hardly even discernible to modern readers. Um, or anyone unacquainted with Shakespeare's style of dirty jokes. Um, Because yes, there are dirty jokes in Shakespeare. I'm just going to get that out of the way right now, because while I highly recommend studying the works of Shakespeare, at the same time, you cannot deny that some of his humor is off-color. As you might guess, his comedies tend to be worse in this respect than his tragedies and histories, but usually he tries to include some kind of comic character in even his darkest plays, and that character, not always, but often, throws around some vulgar jokes. Now, that said, understand that Shakespeare's off-color humor is probably, at least half the time, unrecognizable to modern readers without the interpretation of footnotes or something, um, because a lot of his jokes depend on, uh, like, double meanings in words, and half the time, the words he uses no longer carry the same secondary meanings that they had in his time. And so to us in the 21st century, we're like, what's the joke? I, I don't get it. So that's honestly kind of nice if you, like me, are not interested in this kind of humor. But of course, some of the jokes do successfully travel across the four centuries between Shakespeare and us and retain their meaning, and so it's hard not to understand those. Anyway, all that to say, unabridged Shakespeare is definitely for teens, preferably mature teens, and adults only. Um, But in that context, despite the off-color humor that you periodically encounter, I still highly recommend studying Shakespeare for several reasons. I know this is kind of backwards, giving my recommendation first before I actually discuss the piece of literature, but deal with it. (laughs) Um, First, 
William Shakespeare is simply one of the most influential writers in the English language. His plots, his characters, his use of language have found their way into a vast number of our stories today. Plays, books, films, poems, and into our everyday conversation as well. You would not believe how many words and phrases and figures of speech we use regularly that originated with Shakespeare. I I tried to note down a few of the most famous quotations in Julius Caesar as I read it, just, just to give you a tiny glimpse of the influence he has. Uh, for instance, the phrase, it's all Greek to me, that comes from Julius Caesar, Act 1, Scene 2. Um, or what about friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears? Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2. We don't even think about how innovative that phrase is, lend me your ears. But anymore, it's just a thing that gets said that we all recognize. But Shakespeare came up with it. Um, What about ever heard, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war? That too is from Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 1. And there are so many other quotations from this play alone, even, that may not be things we really say in conversation, but you will often see them alluded to in literature. And so they may ring a bell with you if you've heard them referenced somewhere. Lines like this. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. Or this one. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. If you've ever heard of the book and now film The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, this is where its title comes from. And honestly, I could I could go on and on. It's just astounding, the legacy that even one play has, and much more so, of course, Shakespeare's entire canon. You see evidence everywhere of his influence. So my reason for going down that rabbit trail was to discuss why I think Shakespeare is worth studying. Let me return to that point. So first of all, it greatly enriches your understanding of the English language, and the past 400 years of English literature, if you're able to study some Shakespeare. But secondly, even if you consider the works of Shakespeare completely on their own, without reference to their legacy, they are still an incredibly valuable, challenging set of literature. As we will discuss here with Julius Caesar, his plays are intricately crafted, His characters are complex and subtle, and he asks big, big questions, important questions, and he invites his readers or his audience to personally seek answers to those questions. That's one of the most amazing things about his writing, in my mind. It's truly exceptional. He does not shy away from tough, tangled topics. And he explores difficult themes in depth, at length. And he'll kind of offer some possible solutions, but he will not force one specific, simplistic answer on his audience. If we want a clear answer to the questions Shakespeare raises in his plays, we have to invest something ourselves. We have to think very carefully through everything he's given us, 
all the characters he's portrayed and the choices they've made and, and the reasons for their choices. And we ultimately have to answer the questions ourselves using the tools he's given us. That is really hard to do as a writer, to create something very substantive and meaningful, but something that still demands participation and interpretation from the reader or audience member of a play. And that's a risk. As an author, that's definitely a risk because your audience may not interpret your work the way you think it should be interpreted. This is, in some ways, one of the themes we'll talk about in Julius Caesar itself, the danger of interpretation. But William Shakespeare takes that risk anyway in order to get his audience to think about his work, to wrestle with his ideas, and not just be handed a ready-made conclusion on a platter. So that is what we're going to do a bit today. Wrestle with the ideas Shakespeare explores in his play Julius Caesar. Very briefly, just some quick background info first to make sure we're all um, oriented correctly. So William Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died in 1616. He was a poet, of course, as well as a playwright. You've almost certainly read or heard of some of his sonnets. And there's a great deal of poetry in his plays as well. Much of the dialogue in his plays is written in unrhymed iambic pentameter, which is called blank verse. And that may seem really weird for characters in a play to be speaking in verse, but iambic pentameter is actually the poetic meter that best imitates the natural rhythm that English speakers tend to have in conversation. So it's not that weird, honestly. It could be weirder. But back to Shakespeare's life. He never went to university, but he was very well educated in his younger years in a school led by very scholarly Catholic men from Cambridge. In 1582, at age 18, he married a woman named Anne Hathaway, and they soon had three children. But Hamnet, Shakespeare's only son, died in 1596 at the age of 11. Now, one of the big questions about William Shakespeare's life is whether he was Catholic or Anglican, which were, of course, the only options in 16th century England. The official national religion had kind of flip-flopped over the course of the last few monarchs, but by Shakespeare's time, Queen Elizabeth I was reigning, and she was Protestant. So, in theory, everyone else was supposed to be Protestant. We do know that Shakespeare attended the Church of England, so he may well have been truly Anglican, but there is always the possibility that he was actually Catholic in secret, and just attended the church to conform to what was expected. But we don't know. Um, scholars sometimes wonder if he was secretly Catholic, in part because his father was Catholic, his daughter became a Catholic, and the town where he grew up, Stratford, was overwhelmingly Catholic. But when you look at his plays and poems, you could kind of say there's evidence both ways, so honestly, we, we really don't know for sure. But to wrap up his very brief biography, as far as his playwriting career, he did very well. Not just as far as his later influence, but in his own lifetime, he was wildly successful. 
He moved to London in 1592 at age 28 and started writing plays, and he was also an actor himself. We believe that he acted in some of his own plays. And he had basically 20 years or so of this, and his work was very popular. Queen Elizabeth herself saw some of his plays performed, and he became pretty wealthy over time. And at the time of his death, he owned quite a lot of land and, I believe, three houses. So he he did well. We do not know how he died, but we do know when he died. April 23rd, 1616, at age 52. So, I have spent quite a bit of time on sort of introductory material, but I think all this will be a helpful foundation for now our discussion of the play Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar came right in the middle of Shakespeare's career, um, and I read one commentator call it kind of a watershed in his work. Up to this point, Shakespeare had written almost exclusively comedies and histories. The, the exception would be Romeo and Juliet is the only well-known tragedy that he wrote earlier in his career. So at the time of Julius Caesar, which was probably written in 1599, Shakespeare had just finished up his Henriad, a set of plays focusing largely on King Henry V, absolutely fascinating stuff. But then those were pretty much the last history plays he ever wrote. And with Julius Caesar, he kind of made this transition toward tragedy, which he had not explored very much yet. Julius Caesar itself is really a cross between history and tragedy, since it obviously explores real historical events and real people involved. But most everybody dies in the end, so it's also a tragedy. And following the writing of Julius Caesar, we get, over the next few years, a series of some of Shakespeare's most famous tragedies. First Hamlet, then Othello, and King Lear, and Macbeth. So, all that to say, Julius Caesar is a bit of a turning point, marking this transition from history plays to predominantly tragedies until the end of his career, where things lightened up a bit again. So, the piece of history that this play is about is the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC and the surrounding events. In short, Caesar had conquered all of his rivals, and while not technically the emperor of Rome, by this time he has pretty much become the guy in charge. He's a consul and military hero, the people love him, and it's only a matter of time until he will claim absolute power over the Roman nation, which had been a republic. So it's at this crucial moment that a group of Roman aristocrats, senators, got together and agreed to assassinate Caesar. Their motives are one of the big questions of the play. Did they just want to protect the republican form of government under which Rome had flourished to prevent tyranny from taking over, or was it something less noble? Jealousy or revenge or what have you? We'll see. <laughs> but they succeeded. 
Caesar was killed in the Senate on the Ides of March, or March 15th, 44 BC. Unfortunately, then, instead of the Republic being restored, what ensued was years of civil war between the conspirators on one hand, led by Brutus and Cassius, and Caesar's heirs, or heirs hopeful, on the other, namely Mark Antony and Octavian, who eventually became the emperor Caesar Augustus after he had basically killed everybody else years later. So that is the history that William Shakespeare is exploring in his play Julius Caesar. Now, most of Shakespeare's plays named after a character portray that character as the main character, not surprisingly. Julius Caesar is a little different. Um, Caesar is an important character, but he gets killed in Act 3 out of 5. Really, Brutus is the main character, the, the tragic hero, if you will. So we have a very interesting take on this historical event, the point of view of one of the leaders of the plot to kill Caesar. This opens up all kinds of interesting questions because Brutus is a highly sympathetic character in Shakespeare's depiction. Everyone else in the play praises him for his nobility and honorable character. Even his enemies at the end of the play say of him after his death, this was the noblest Roman of them all. So despite the fact that he participated in the murder of a man who was at one point his friend, the play still invites us to see some justification, possibly, for his choices. He seems to act out of a genuine desire to preserve liberty for the Roman people. At least, that's part of his motive. Motives. Motives are always essential and difficult questions in Shakespeare. Often the word he'll use, th this is a pro tip for studying Shakespeare, often the word he will use is cause. Always pay attention when a character in a Shakespeare play talks about the cause of something, because it's probably important. And there may seem to be multiple or even conflicting causes for an event, as is true in Julius Caesar of Caesar's assassination. So, so Brutus is sympathetic, but William Shakespeare definitely suggests that, if not he, at least some of the conspirators have more suspect motives, less noble causes for their choice to kill Caesar. So, as you can tell, this is a play with a lot of political themes, and it's, it's fascinating how the story has been used throughout the ages in political contexts. Generally, the conspirators are portrayed pretty positively, and Caesar and his allies pretty negatively, which isn't entirely unsupported by the text, but we will talk about how Shakespeare's presentation of this issue is not one-sided. There are clear arguments to be made for and against both sides of the assassination question. But throughout history, the play has often been performed in such a way as to make political statements, and has even, I think, influenced historical events. For instance, John Wilkes Booth, assassinator of Abraham Lincoln, performed in a production of Julius Caesar in 1864, 
just six months before he killed Lincoln. I don't know much about the performance itself, but after Booth shot Lincoln, he famously shouted, Sic semper tyrannis, before fleeing the building. And that's a Latin phrase that means, thus always to tyrants. And there is one somewhat contested tradition that Brutus said that phrase after assassinating Julius Caesar. He doesn't say it in the play, but I do think it's intriguing that Booth had been involved in this production of Julius Caesar about the assassination of a tyrant just months before he decided to walk in Brutus's footsteps, so to speak, and kill Lincoln. Interesting. Another instance of the play being turned to political ends was in 1937. Orson Welles starred in his own adaptation of the play, which he put in a modern setting, and Caesar and his allies were portrayed as fascists, which obviously was extremely relevant in 1937. So, point being, the most common interpretation of the play seems to be in favor of the assassins. The tendency is to understand Brutus and Cassius and their allies as champions of freedom and justice, and to understand Caesar and Mark Antony and Octavian as ruthless and violent tyrants. Now, there's some truth to that, but as I say, William Shakespeare is not so simplistic, and there are good reasons to push back a little against that interpretation without pushing too far. So let's quickly consider the causes Shakespeare gives us in the play to question the choices of the conspirators who killed Caesar. First of all, it's obvious that we should seriously examine assassination of anyone in any context. This is violent, dangerous, and no matter how tyrannical, you are killing a human being. That is an action that should never be undertaken lightly. So the conspirators already have that sort of against them that they must overcome. Their motives, as well as the outcome of their action, must be enough to justify murder before we should let ourselves sympathize with them too much. Well, but Shakespeare gives us some more causes not to necessarily regard the conspirators as right in what they did. They may have some good motives, but the motives are definitely mixed. Some seem to be acting out of envy, or ambition, or hatred, or pride. These are all very poor justifications for assassinating someone. And in addition to the mixed motives, we're given a curious detail in the play, which is another important thing to watch out for in Shakespeare. The conspirators cannot sleep. This is specifically said multiple times about Brutus in particular. When someone can't sleep in Shakespeare's plays, it usually means they are not at peace inwardly. They're troubled. Now, of course, there are a variety of reasons people can be troubled, but it's usually not a good sign, certainly not in Shakespeare. So that is another cause to question Brutus and his co-conspirators. And lastly, but very importantly, their objective in killing Caesar is completely and utterly thwarted. They fail in their mission. They fail to preserve the Republic. So even if 
their motives were entirely noble and they only wanted to protect freedom, they do not even remotely succeed. The assassination only leads to civil war, which ends in tyranny when Rome becomes an empire. So, in other words, Shakespeare gives us lots of reasons not to be all on the side of the conspirators. Now, that said, neither, I think, should we be all on the side of Caesar and his friends. Shakespeare is pretty clear about that, too. Obviously, first of all, tyranny is not good. And it's pretty clear that Caesar was indeed aiming to make Rome his personal empire. And his allies are highly suspect as well, though they too are nuanced. Um, And their response to Caesar's assassination is very messy. As I said, civil war ensues, and that is not all the faults of the assassins. In the play, Shakespeare portrays Mark Antony, Caesar's friend, as very effectively inciting violence against the conspirators um, on the part of the Roman people. He inspires a mob, essentially, that does terrible things. One of the shortest, but I think most chilling scenes in the play, which reportedly was staged to tremendously powerful effect in Orson Welles' production, it's a little scene after Caesar's funeral, at which... Mark Antony, who is a masterful orator, stirs up the mob against the assassins. And this short scene follows in which the mob encounters a poet walking down the street who very unfortunately has the same name as one of the assassins, Cinna. And the mob learns his name and kills him, just like that. He tries to explain who he actually is, and they do not even care. They are just caught up in this violent tide, avenging Caesar's blood, and they kill this innocent man. So here's the thing. Neither side of this political divide achieves peace or freedom or democracy. Both sides involve various people with various motives, and both participate in bringing about civil war, which ultimately leads to tyranny. Think the Emperor Nero, uh, Caligula, all those awful guys that came just a few years later. So you cannot just say one side was right and the other was wrong. Shakespeare depicts a political landscape that is much more complex than that. And so we have to wrestle with these questions ourselves learning from the many angles on the situation that Shakespeare presents us with. Okay, but there's more than just political questions here. Quickly, I want to end with a closer look at the main characters of the play. I identify four main characters, Caesar, Brutus, Mark Antony, and Cassius. In the play, Caesar is a brilliant military leader and a cunning politician. He is a strong, decisive personality, and he's pretty good at assessing the people around him. He's a, a good judge of character, generally. But he is also arrogant and ambitious. His wife tells him at one point, Your wisdom is consumed in confidence confidence or arrogance. This flaw 
makes him vulnerable to flattery, and it blinds his judgment, which is a big part of his downfall. I can't get into all the details, um, but this is my quick analysis of his character because we're running out of time. Um, but I can't, I can't say it better than Shakespeare. Caesar's wisdom is consumed in confidence. Brutus is different. He does not seem to be ambitious, certainly not in the way Caesar is. He seems to be a pretty great guy on a personal level. Everyone respects him. He seems to have a, a warm relationship with his wife and good friendships, and his servants seem to love him, which says a lot. And I think he honestly cares about the Roman Republic and feels like he must oppose what he sees as coming tyranny. But he's got two main flaws that I can see. He does have a kind of pride in that he comes from an old, noble political family and sees himself as potentially the savior of the Republic. Not that he wants to rule, but I do think he likes that vision of himself as the hero of the Republic. And secondly, his other flaw is that he's pretty terrible at correctly judging the people and things and events around him. Repeatedly, he misinterprets things. And that makes things go horribly wrong for him. Now, as far as Mark Antony, we've talked a bit about him already. He is pretty shady, in my opinion. You can understand him in different ways, depending largely on how the actor portrays him. That's the other thing about drama. Part of the audience's interpretation is going to be guided by how the characters are acted. But to me, just reading the play, Mark Antony is suspicious. As I said, he is a brilliant orator. He sways the public so effectively. But what that ends up proving to me is that he is a master manipulator. And so I kind of question everything he says, even when it sounds all good and noble. Shakespeare shows us that he is very adept with words and persuasion. And so I don't trust him personally. But you don't have to interpret him that negatively. That is Shakespeare's brilliance. He makes us decide what to think of his characters. And lastly, I just have to mention Cassius. Really, he deserves more time than this, but he, he's such an interesting and difficult character to interpret. So he is a co-conspirator with Brutus, and just a good friend. Actually, he's Brutus's brother-in-law, I believe. And he's really the one who gets Brutus involved in the whole assassination plot. And Cassius is a little scary, especially at the beginning of the play. He is this angry, scheming, really almost sinister character who acts as a kind of tempter to Brutus to get him to participate in the assassination. But then the more we see of Cassius, honestly, the more sympathetic I think he becomes. We see more sides of him. He seems to be, in some sense, genuinely devoted to his friends, Brutus included. There is some strife between them, yes, and yet there's also this, I think, very real friendship. It's, it's fascinating. Cassius is kind of hot-headed, and that causes some of the conflict. But he is very committed 
to whatever he does and whoever he cares about. So you, you have to give him that. Unfortunately, he is another one who misinterprets things fatally, just like Brutus does. And actually, Caesar does this too. I have to end with this point, but I cannot leave it out. It's very important to this play. Characters all over the place in Julius Caesar are misreading other people and texts and signs of various kinds. There's an extraordinary number of religious omens and supernatural events, even, that happen in this play. Uh, note that we are in a pagan context here, right? Unlike the Christian context of most of Shakespeare's plays. So you have pagan priests trying to divine the signs of the times from animals and, and natural events like storms and things. And there are dreams, prophetic dreams, and ghosts, and even pretty explicit prophecies. And yet, almost every single time, the characters involved misinterpret what they're seeing. It's insane. But Shakespeare is making a very clear point that any given sign can be understood in multiple ways. So you have an ominous storm. This could signify the death of Caesar, or it could signify the triumph of Caesar at the cost of the Republic, the death of the Republic. Or it could signify civil war, or it could also just be a weird storm with no meaning. It all depends on how you interpret it. But even what's crazy is even instances in the play where a character seems to be given a fairly clear sign of coming doom, they usually either ignore it or manage somehow to interpret it incorrectly. And that does not work out for them. So ultimately, I believe Shakespeare wants us to be aware of how hard it is to truly, rightly understand the things around us and the people around us. And on top of that, he shows how disastrous it can be to wrongly interpret. So when we read this play or watch it performed, we are left with, if nothing else, a clear warning to judge carefully. We cannot ignore the things around us because that's just as dangerous, but we mustn't jump to conclusions either. We must use as much wisdom as we can in interpreting what we see, even what we see in the play itself with its complex characters and ambivalent political themes. Shakespeare, I think, hopes that we will thoughtfully interpret his story in a way that his characters failed to interpret their own story. So that is Julius Caesar. This turned into a long episode. Like I said, I sure love Shakespeare. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of one of Shakespeare's first tragedies, and we get to talk about Shakespeare for one more week in next Wednesday's episode featuring his comedy, The Merchant of Venice. So I hope you tune in again for that. 
Thanks for listening today, and be sure to message me if you have thoughts or questions about Shakespeare in general, or this play in particular. You can contact me directly through Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon, and all those links are in the episode description. I would love to hear from you. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my writing at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I'll see you next week for more Shakespeare. Shakespeare.